All right. If you have Numbers chapter 11, uh, we're, we're going to have something more like a conversation of sorts. Numbers chapter 11, several, several weeks ago, I woke up in a conversation with the Lord. Have you ever been there? Like, I wasn't getting up trying to pray as soon as my eyes opened. But I woke up in a conversation with the Lord, and the Lord drew my attention to Numbers chapter 11. And as I've been fasting and praying, uh, not just over these days together, as I know we are as a church family included in that, uh, but even prior to that, um, I found my attention drawn to the first six verses in Numbers chapter 11, and I believe with all of my heart that the Lord has a conversation for us this morning. And so I, I would even encourage you that if you brought something to take notes with, um, if you want to mark these six verses uh, in your Bible, this is not just going to be one of those things where it's, oh yeah, that was cool because it's biblically true. Uh, I believe that this is going to be somewhat of a word that is true for our church family in this season. Uh, you could even say somewhat of a prophetic application. Uh, not prophetic in the nature of fortune telling, but prophetic in the nature of taking the word of the Lord. Uh, meaning, uh, primarily, the exhortation of the scriptures to us in a personal way in season and in ways that we have deviated from the exhortation of the scriptures to us in a personal way, calling us back into alignment with things that God has said to us, which you could also tag or define as the word of the Lord to us. I'm not talking about the word of the Lord being some abstract thing that you find outside of the context or the counsel of the scriptures, but Obedience to God revealed through specific or personal passages to us in season where God is making his heart and desires made known to us and the application of those things requires of us a posture of obedience. Oftentimes, this is where prophets were inserted into the conversation for course correction. Come back to the things that God has said to you. Return to the posture of obedience according to the word of the Lord, God's heart that has been revealed to you. And so I, I believe that the Lord has a specific conversation for us. In some ways, that if you are looking for a title, uh, we could consider the conversation delivered from domestication. Delivered from domestication. Delivered from domestication. I believe that it is the Lord's desire, it's his heart for us, that we experience him and the power of his transformational and unconditional love so that our lives can actually be whole. And in our lives being whole, we can actually function out of a place of healthy identity. And we can actually do the thing or the things 
that God has absolutely called us to do. And I believe that this is the Lord's desire for us. I believe that it's what he wants, and I believe that it's what he's after. And I believe that over our time together this morning, the Lord is going to begin to knock on the door or tap certain things that are on the inside of you that God has been looking for, that God has been looking for. Numbers chapter 11, I'm just going to read the first six verses. I'm going to read it in the NASB, uh, and then after we read all six verses, we'll just go back, and almost verse by verse, we'll just make comments or add commentary to it and come to a particular conclusion. Verse 1 says, Now the people became like those who complain of adversity or when they face adversity. And they did it in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled. And the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. The people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed to the Lord, and the fire died out. So the name of that place was called Tibera, because the fire of the Lord burned among them. And the rabble who were among them had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel began to weep again. And they said, who will give us meat to eat? We remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks and the onions and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone. There is nothing at all to look at out here except this manna. I want us to return back to verse 1. It says, Now the people became like those who complained when they faced adversity. The first thing that I want us to take note of is that there was immaturity in adversity. There was immaturity when facing adversity. It's peculiar to me that God's response to them complaining about what they were going through wasn't to rally up around them and to try to, in some compassionate way, be like, it's okay, brother. We realize life has been tough. Things have been hard lately. Not to minimize the things that they were going through, but take note of God's posture in relationship to the way they were handling what it is that they were going through. God didn't somehow send some prophetic person down the line in order to reward them with some great word of comfort or compassion. The fire of the Lord burned and his anger was aroused. There's something that we have to take note of here. God's position wasn't like, oh, okay, I understand. It's cool, times are tough. I agree with the way that you're going through what you're going through. That's not the way that the Lord's posture was. And it's evidenced in his response to their posture. It wasn't like the Lord was like, it's okay. It's cool. They're really being pressed. They're really going through it. I understand. So I'm going to endorse their murmuring, their complaining. I'm going to endorse what they're becoming because of the things that they're facing. No, it was the exact opposite. Because you see, that's how we think. We think that the best thing that we can do at times is comfort people in the way that they're going through what they're going through based off of how we're evaluating the level of difficulty. 
And we say like, oh yeah, 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 it's all right. Just let them go through it in whatever way they want to go through it. Praise God that at least they're still going through it. And that's not the way that the Lord is speaking here. The anger of God was aroused. And the fire literally surrounded them all in a circular way around the camp. And the fire burned to the point where they feared. Now let's take some note here. It says that they became like those who complained when they faced adversity. We have to understand that we are becoming something by way of how we are going through what we're going through. And they became like those who complain when they faced adversity. Now, now let's also take note. In your early days, immaturity is often overlooked. In some ways, it's, it's expected. Immaturity is expected. When you first get born again, when you're early in the faith, when you're just trying to walk through life, man, this whole new Jesus thing and, and what he desires and the counsel or the instruction of the scriptures, because that's what we orient our lives to, to know how we're supposed to go through what we go through. We're not orienting our lives to our emotions. We're not orienting our lives to the counsel at times that other people give that violate the instructions of the scriptures, born again and not born again. Right? Oftentimes people with your best interest offer you counsel that violates the instruction of the scriptures in a way to try to help you in what you're going through. It's not real help. But in the early days, immaturity is okay. But you realize that as you continue to grow in God, there's different expectations. As you mature in the Lord, certain immaturities are no longer excusable. They're no longer all right. And at this point in Numbers 11, they had been journeying for a time. And it was long enough of a time that gave them time to become something. Now, if you remember, God had an initial desire of why he called them out because he wanted them to become something. So the language is specific here because what they were going through in an ongoing way and the different tests that they had faced, the different challenges that they had to go through, the different circumstances and scenarios where things were difficult and trials seemed to press them in uncomfortable or inconvenient ways. The verse here in Numbers 11.1 1 says that they were becoming something other than what God had desired for them to become. And it was evidenced when they faced adversity. Oh, well, you don't understand, brother. Like, what I'm going through actually made me the way that I am. That's not true. What's been in you has always been in you. And it's just now that the right circumstances are being set up to press you in the right way. So that what's always been in you, buried beneath the surface of knowing how to keep it together when things are going your way, knowing how to keep whatever image up or maintain a certain measure of spirituality for the sake of others that are watching and your own integrity before God, life is now configured or organized in a way to press you the right way so that what's actually going on in you actually starts to bubble up on the inside of you and most oftentimes, you find it coming out of your mouth. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And what was coming out of their mouth was complaining for their season. Complaining for God's leadership in their life. Complaining and murmuring. 
And it says that they were speaking among themselves, but God heard it. They weren't bringing it to the Lord. They were bringing it to others. Problem number uno. They weren't actually bringing it to the Lord. They were bringing it to others. And so rather than that thing being able to get dealt with, it continued to morph and to compromise and to escalate. But in the beginning, when you're immature, immaturity is fine. But as you continue to grow in God, there are different expectations. There are different expectations. And the expectation graduates to where you no longer have certain excuses to go through things the way that you're actually going through them. Because you're mature enough to know better. You have enough history in God to do it better. You have enough investment with the word in order for the counsel of the word to influence you in a way that is going to create a different posture and allow for a different thing at times to come out of your mouth. It's not okay for you to go through what you've been going through just any way that you want to choose to try and get through it. And that's the difference. In the early days, it's however you can survive. It's whatever you got to do just to make it through. It's all hell is breaking loose, pressed on every side, in case of emergency, break glass, and hold on for dear life. But that's not the expectation of the mature. That's not the expectation of those that are actually becoming something in God. We're no longer justified by our own perspective. We're no longer justified by our emotional instabilities. We're no longer justified by whatever wisdom it may be that the world offers us or other people with their best interest at heart speech offer us. What actually matters and what matters most is the instruction of the word. What actually matters and what matters most is that we want to do life and do life Jesus's way, which means we don't get a pass to do it our way whenever we feel justified to do it based off of certain levels of adversity that we face. And here, there was a measure of adversity that they faced that revealed the depth of their immaturity. There was a level of adversity that they faced that actually revealed the depth of their immaturity. He didn't send them a particular way in the beginning, if you remember, when he brought them out. Because he knew that they would face certain battles and that they wouldn't be ready for it. And that they would actually turn around. Initially, when he delivered them, he told Moses, I have to lead you on a longer route or pathway. Because in their immaturity, if they face certain battles too soon, they're going to use it as a buyout clause. They're going to turn around. They're going to jump ship. They're going to cast off restraint. They're going to unhinge themselves from my leadership and go back to the things that were behind them. God said, I'm actually doing this for you and not just for me. We're going to journey around for a time instead of experiencing certain depths of challenges in more of an immediate way that would convince you that it was okay to actually turn back on the things that God said to you and was doing in your life. But now it's been a time. And as it's been a time, God had different expectations of them. Now that it's been a time, God expected a different evidence whenever they faced challenges or adversities. 
It's beautiful because God will grow you to a point where he can show you things that are coming. And rather than you running from him, rather than you taking it as some prophetic prescription for things for you to avoid, not all insight that comes to you in a revelatory way in the place of prayer is so that you can dodge things. Right? We're often looking for prophetic insight so that we can avoid certain challenges, so that we can orient our lives towards greater conveniences and ease. And in reality, we say things are well when they're easy. Right? It's rare to find somebody when their whole life looks busted, everything's on fire, and all hell's breaking loose. And you're like, how are you, brother? I'm amazing. They're standing in the front yard. The whole house is on fire. How are you, brother? I am blessed. But God wants to grow us to a place where he can show us things that are coming. And rather than it scaring us into a place where we unhinge his leadership from our life, where he can actually reveal to us things that are to come. I want you to consider how many times Jesus told them the cross was coming. How many times he instructed them that he was going to be horrifically embarrassed and executed in a public arena and that he was going to, with joy, lay down his life in a joy-filled and self-sacrificing way on behalf of God's purposes. And then consider, in every instance where he spoke of things that were to come, often they challenged him, often they rebuked him, often they tried to curb him in a different direction, Often, even Peter himself in Matthew 16 said, these things will never happen to you. And he responds to Peter. And he says, Peter, you're actually thinking with the mind of the flesh. And you don't have the concerns of God or the mind of God, the wisdom of the Spirit actually leading your life. There's a place where we grow to in maturity in God, where he's able to speak to us of things that are to come, and rather than us trying to dodge them with all of our might, rather than us trying to rally intercessors around us so that they can pray that unfavorable word off of us, rather than us trying to beg the Lord for his mercy demonstrated to us in the avoidance of whatever circumstance, there's a place in God where he'll grow us, where he can even show you difficult things that are on the horizon. And not only will he show you difficult things that are on the horizon, as if that's not enough, but he will then also call you to a particular posture where the requirement is now not that you just go through what you're going through, but that you actually go through it the way that it's been prescribed to you to go through. You don't even choose to go through it your own way anymore, where it's holding on for dear life, and in case of emergency, break glass, and it's a free-for-all, and whatever I got to do just to survive. No, no, no. Survival is no longer the goal. Thriving in God and flourishing according to the purposes that God reveals to us is the goal of the mature in the place of loving obedience, where he shows you what's coming and then shows you the posture to take where he shows you what's on the way and then reveals to you the way that he wants you to go through it. 
We're in greater dependency than you've ever known. You have to cling to God and the power of his grace and the life of his spirit because it's not only the what that wants to break you, but it's the way that you go through it that wants to break you. And there's a different expectation for those that are mature, even as it was for Jesus, bleeding out of his face in the garden, praying about the things that he knew were coming, but also coming into alignment with God in the place of prayer for the posture that his father was asking him to take in relationship to the things that he knew his father was about to have him walk through. Man, what an amazing place to be with God, where we can know the power and the provision of his presence, where we can come into the reality of grace that actually breaks us and transforms us. And by way of breaking us, I mean it destroys the resistance that at times is alive on the inside that does not want to do it the way that God has shown it to us where we don't actually want to take the posture that God has revealed to us. When there's a multitude of other ways where we could seem to satisfy the objective that God has unveiled to us, but our desire is not just to get things done, but it's to do what he's asked us in the way that he's asked us to do it. Where our heart cry is, I delight to do your will. Jesus said, I didn't come to do my own thing, I came to do the will of him who sent me. And no man actually takes my life from me, but I lay it down by my own power. Because the Father has given me power to lay my life down and also power to pick it back up. It was Jesus' goal to demonstrate a worship and evidence an affection in the place of his obedience. It was Jesus' goal that on the platform of his obedience, it would demonstrate his affection that he had for his Father. Because if we're not aware, obedience is worship. Obedience is worship. And obedience is an evidence of affection. Consider it as it was with Abraham. Me and the boy will go to the top of the mount to worship. A man dealing with potentially one of the most difficult words the leadership of God had ever installed in his life or revealed to his own heart. He was wanting to walk that out in a way that would please the Lord. And he says, we are going to the top of the mount to worship. Genesis 22.5 is the first place in the Bible that worship is mentioned that way. The word worship in the scriptures in Genesis 22, verse 5, is the first instance. I know we know that. But it is in the context of a man wanting to demonstrate loving obedience and wrestling with the leadership of God in a difficult season and still wanting to allow his life to say I love you with the way that his life was actually being lived and not just with the words that were coming out of his mouth. You could say it this way. An amazing way to say I love you is to actually obey the things that he's saying to you. One of the ways you say I love you is to obey him. Jesus said I know those that love me in John 14, 15. 
They are the ones that obey me. And later, just a couple of verses later, he says, and the opposite is true. When you're unwilling to obey me, it just evidences that you don't actually love me. You can sing all the songs you want. You can quote all the verses you want. My leadership in your life and the loving obedience that comes out of the posture of your devotion to me actually reveals whether or not you love me. He would have told them when there was a crowd surrounded in the book of Matthew, chapter 15. They sing songs with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Echoing the prophet Isaiah. With their lips they praise me, but their hearts, they're hard. Their hearts are cold and distant. Yeah, they gather and they sing songs, but I don't have them the way that those lyrics would, you, would make you think. I don't actually have traction in their life with my leadership. They haven't become subject to me in the way that I desire. The power of my grace they're not actually yielding to, to the point where it destroys all of the resistance that's in them that keeps them from actually consistently taking a posture, assuming devotion under my leadership. They, I don't have them that way. Their obedience was to be a demonstration of their affection. But as we find, as we continue in the verses, that things get very interesting. Because verse 2 says, the people therefore cried out to Moses, and Moses prayed and the fire actually died. And they named that place because of the experience with the fire that they had. Verse 4, the rabble, rabble is unruly or disorderly crowd. It can also be in relationship to a mob. Those who had been murmuring, complaining, those who had been challenging God's love for them and his leadership to them in their season now somehow found each other. Praise the Lord. Isn't that interesting how it always seems to happen? You don't have to look far. Whatever's in you is eventually going to find its way to you. Praise the Lord. And they now created a little disorderly mob. That's rabble. R-A-B-B-L-E. Put it in Webster's Dictionary. It's a disorderly crowd. It's a mob of sorts. And they now found each other. And they hooked up in a difficult season. Man, I'm just telling you. It's so important who you choose to hook up with in a difficult season. Man, I'm telling you. It is vital who you're actually getting counsel from who you're actually sharing things from and opening up your heart and allowing other voices to influence your life. It's very important that you're not just finding people that are going to champion your compromise. You're not just finding people that are going to endorse your lack of alignment. You're not just looking for voices that are just in some cheesy way going to appease you and make accommodation for you and cater to whatever thing it is that you desire or demand or whatever thing it is that you've been complaining about or don't like. It is so important that we find people in those seasons that can continue in love, in love, in love to confront us with the truth, who aren't just going to cheerlead us in seasons of disobedience because 
praise God, it's what feels good in this moment. You're not actually helping me if you're not helping me get into alignment with God. You're not actually helping me if you're not challenging me in the areas of my lack of alignment. You're not really helping me and being a great friend to me if your counsel is coming from other places than the prescription or the instruction of the word. I have a heart desire to do life Jesus' way. And that's what I need, even when I don't want to hear it. When my life isn't necessarily postured in a way that would be pleasing to him based off of his expectations for me in my season or stature of maturity. I need people that are going to call me back into accountability with the Lord. I need people that are going to confront me with Bible verses that are going to speak to me and put me back into the proper place of devotion and posture with God. Like Paul would have told the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 7. He said, I wrote this letter knowing that it was going to offend the mess out of y'all. I knew it. I sat down. I thought about it. I prayed about it. I wept over it. And I wrote it anyways. Because in the end, it was my prayer that even though I knew when you read that letter and received God's instruction that you were going to turn away from me, That's loving people with the truth. I'm just not trying to cheerlead every desire, every misaligned thing. I'm not your guy, which is probably why a lot of people don't come to me with that kind of stuff. I'm not your guy. I'm trying to hear from the Lord, and I'm trying to do what he says. And I'm trying to call people to accountability with Jesus. I'm trying to call people to demonstrate love in the place of obedience. It doesn't matter to me. And so these people found each other. The rabble who were among them, they got together and they had greedy desires. And also the sons of Israel wept again and they said, Who will give us meat to eat? For we remember the fish which we used to eat for free in Egypt. We remember the cucumbers and the melons, and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic. But now our appetite is gone, for there is nothing at all to look at except this manna. The second thing, if we're taking notes, can be adversity awakened an appetite for the things that were. Adversity awakened an appetite for the things that were behind them. Adver adversity awakened and aroused an appetite for things that used to be. And it wasn't the only time that God addressed them in this way. Interesting that they faced enemies, attacks from within their own camp. They faced the context of the wild. And yet it was the awakening and the arousal of an appetite for the things that were that ended up compromising them. There was something about the context behind them that fed them and nourished them in a way that they longed for whenever difficulty came on their life. We have to be aware that in all of us, there are certain things about Egypt that fed us. We have to be aware that in the way 
that things were organized. In a previous season, there was a certain nourishment. There was a certain satisfaction. There was a certain measure of experience that in some ways validated even the dysfunction of the previous season. We have to understand that their adversity and the awakening of an appetite for the things that were behind them started in them to dream about a previous format or context or season. And interestingly enough, they thought that they needed a format in order to have a function. The way that things were organized in Egypt helped them to connect with identity and a certain experience of value. Things weren't organized the same way in their current season, and it drew them to lose their bearings with identity and with value. The question, in some cases, that we have to ask is, how do things have to be organized in order for us to be satisfied in God? How do things need to be organized in order for us to be satisfied in God? It wasn't that God wasn't with them. It wasn't that God wasn't moving mightily among them. God even speaks to them in Numbers 14. And he says, how long will these people spurn me and reject me and disobey my leadership? How much do I have to do by way of signs and wonders to actually prove to them the things that I've said to them and my affection for them? In the midst of everything that I've done, they are still rejecting me and my leadership and constantly desiring to go back. And if we think that this is some small issue, we are grossly underestimating the challenge of organization. We are grossly underestimating the challenge of organization. Their difficulty was what they were seeing and experiencing. It was a format. It was how things were organized. And in their own estimation, they needed a format in order to connect with identity and value. They needed a particular context in order to find nourishment. They said, those things back there, they fed us. Those things back there, they actually nourished us. Well, if you remember in Egypt, if you remember the difficulty in Egypt, they had an activity that assumed for them an identity. They had an activity. They were given work to do every day. And then out of what they were doing, definition came on their life. They were given responsibilities by a taskmaster, and Pharaoh drove them. In Egypt, they had activity, and because of activity, it assumed of them identity. Well, things are organized differently now. Now I'm out in the wilderness, and now I don't have things organized in a particular way that's going to help me by way of activity, connect with identity and a certain measure of value. Now all I have, rather than what people are saying about me based off of what they see me doing, now all I have when I come out into the wilderness is what God says about me. And now all I have is the word of the Lord and the place of identity that has to be established by the things that God says about me. 
and not my daily activity, not my bank account, not my social equity, not my ministry responsibilities, not my flow and go. Only what God says are the things that are to be established. And this is the challenge of what they're experiencing. But part of the problem was, is they weren't discerning their season accurately. Because if you don't realize what God is actually trying to accomplish, then you can easily justify casting off restraint when going through the processes that God is going to bring you through in order to accomplish the things that he revealed to you. And they lost their sense of discernment because of the consistency of the trouble that they experienced. And they started dreaming about a context that was behind them. And we have to be aware that there are certain measures of, ex- of adversity that are longing to awaken in us a way out. And oftentimes a way out does not move, mean moving forward. It means moving back to something or place that is going to allow me to what we call stabilize. And in stabilizing, it's getting grounded again in a context or a format or a position or a space that is going to allow me to experience a certain type of idea of activity connected to my idea about my identity. And they dreamed of going back because of the trouble that they were facing. Oddly enough, instead of their adversity conforming them, it compromised them. Instead of them becoming what God wanted them to, based off of the troubles that God was walking with them through, rather than being conformed to his image and his desires, they were compromised. And in them being compromised... They started to say often, God brought us out here to kill us. Now that's odd because God revealed to them in the beginning what it was all about. He told them, I'm the one that saw you in Egypt in your bondage. I'm the one that while you were prostituting yourselves, while you were living as adulterers, there under the idols and the captivity of Egypt, I'm the one that with outstretched arm and signs and wonders, rescued you and redeemed you and I brought you out so that you could be mine and so that you could actually be my holy possession identity so that I could make you into a holy nation identity and a royal priesthood identity and so that as you came under my leadership and listened to my voice I could journey with you even to the mount where you could ascend to come and be with me and to worship me out in the wilderness. But when times got tough and adversity had been ongoing in a certain way for so long, they lost their bearings. They lost their framework with the things that God had said and even started creating other visions that were born out of their experience rather than out of the things that God had said to them. They said, who's going to give us meat out here? When was that a part of the story? But often enough and oddly enough, when our life gets pressed, when we face adversity for long enough, it starts to compromise the things we're dreaming about. 
It starts to change the vision that we work with and live by. And they were now allowing their experience to give birth to vision rather than the word of the Lord. And their vision that came out of their experience was to find their way back to a place that would once again ground them in an understanding of identity and would give them an activity in order to live that out again. Because it's part of the challenge in a wilderness-type season or experience. I'll ask you this. What do you need to be who God says you are? What do you need to be who God says you are? Because it's the difficulty of a wilderness-type experience. In Egypt, they were given an activity and given an identity. You are this because you do this. You do slave work every day, you're a slave, period. And the dysfunction of an Egyptian orientation is to simply be defined by the things that we previously have learned to do. But if identity is actually identity, and it's not only assumed when you have the right activity, then what do you actually need in order to be who God says you are and to do the things that God has said your life is supposed to be about? Because when things get organized a little differently, we experience different challenges. When things get organized in a way other than where we mastered our craft, perfected our flow, where we had become comfortable by expressing ourselves or demonstrating a particular idea of identity in certain spaces or places in conversations. When you shuffle the deck a little bit and you reconfigure things and your season now is organized a little differently and where God says we're going to flip the script, we're not going to start with activity, we're going to start with identity. Because in Egypt, you get an activity and then they label you with an identity. But in the wilderness, God establishes you. He roots you in an, act, in an identity and then seemingly strips you of the activities that you've previously learned to express those things. And the challenge is, do you actually believe that that's who you are or not? When you can't function in the same way that you've historically known to do. When you don't have the same spaces, places, context, or format to demonstrate your belief about your identity in the way maybe you were raised to do or had been conditioned to do. And it's always been odd to me how it just takes a little bit of changing in the organization to completely derail people in the place of their bearings. And I'm not saying that it happens always, but it does happen. And so I'll ask again, what do you think you need in order for you to be who God says you are and to do what it is that God says your life is supposed to be doing? At times I have people who ask me, hey man, I got invited to this event. You know, I'm, I'm going to be preaching this meeting. Would you pray for me? And then sometimes they're confused when they don't get the measure of excitement that they were anticipating. 
But I think to myself, like, in some cases, sometimes I've been sitting in rooms with people for a year, two years, five years, and you've never in some ways had an idea of what God was saying to us. How can I celebrate and champion you now going and telling them what God is saying to them? Is it only real for them? What has happened to you with us is my wonder. Like, what is the challenge in the connection with the place of identity and functioning out of identity? Right? Like, what is it in our supposed idea for a demand to organize or to contextually return to things? Meaning, like, and, and I joke, however, though, like, what do we need to do? When I think of the number of people that we have in this room that have been on pastoral staffs, ministry teams, missions, different assignments, yada, 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 like, who, in some cases, preached daily, weekly, but in some ways, now, never really have an idea of what God is saying. What is the lack of connection? I wonder to myself. Do we need to put you on a pastoral staff again for your ear to be open to what the Lord is saying? Do we need to attach some sort of compensation to it in order for your ear to be opened again and sensitive to the things that God is saying? Does it need to be an important enough environment for you in order for your heart to once again come alive in responsibility to the voice of God where you are being accountable to the Lord in the place of hearing him on behalf of people that you feel responsible for? Like, what is it about the organization of the season that has caused you to lose your bearings in the place of activity connected to identity? Because in Egypt, you get an activity that assumes an identity. In the wilderness, God says you are something and then challenges you to actually live from it in an authentic and whole way and not in the ways where previously you had to do it in order to validate certain beliefs about you. Their vision changed because of how much trouble they experienced. And they were no longer seeing what they were going through through the lens of what God has said, but they were now seeing what they were going through through the lens of their own desires. And they were making the necessary accommodations in order to orient themselves to the things that they felt they needed most instead of obedience to the things that God has said. You can tell when you're beginning to get compromised in the place of adversity. There are telltale signs. You can tell when you're beginning to get compromised based off of the measure of difficulty or trial or trouble that you've experienced. And it's when you begin to orient yourself to opportunity even if it compromises obedience. Where you begin to look to things in an opportunistic way instead of a jealousy to keep the consistency of a particular posture of obedience. They said, we've been going through hell long enough. 
we've got a new list of demands. We've been going through it. And based off of what we've been going through, this is now the things that we are saying we need most. And they started dreaming themselves of what they thought would satisfy their season rather than keeping the consistency of the narrative of the word of the Lord that not only brought them into that season, but was also going to be powerful enough to bring them through that season and see them into the fulfillment of things that God had said to them. They changed everything. And they started going after things that they wanted in an opportunistic way, even if it compromised the place of their obedience. And you can always tell when you're on the verge of being compromised because your palate changes. Your palate changes. My ultimate desire is no longer to obey the Lord. In some cases, forget all that. I'm just trying to get out of what I've been in. I'm just trying to abort mission, jump ship. I need a way out. Like, like the tension of everything that has been experienced. Now my dream is different. My language is different. My inner circle is different. And I am compromising the place of obedience to get to the things that I want to get to, which ultimately I think are going to help me because that's what a compromised palate thinks. These things are going to be a benefit to me. But in reality, in the end, they're going to devastate God's purposes. And they were not discerning of their season, and it compromised their posture of obedience. We have to understand that God unravels all of the terms so that we can experience the power of unconditional love. Unconditional love is the thing that, if asked, everyone in this room probably says they want most. To be loved for who you are. No hiding. No pretense, no agenda. To be loved for who you are and not because of what you do. To allow all of the different terms and conditions to be broken off. And God longs to love us this way because he knows that ultimately it sets us free. God longs for you to experience the power and the transformation that is to be known when we experience his unconditional love. But even though it's the thing that we say we want most, most have spent a lot of time determining the terms upon which we want to be known and how we want to be interacted with. Though we say we want unconditional love, we go to great lengths in order to create conditions for people to interpret us and to interact with us. But God knows that until we experience unconditional love, we won't actually be whole. And what I mean by that is, in Egypt, they had to work to prove their worth. In Egypt, they were slaves by way of identity, and their activity on a daily basis determined their value. And it's one of the things that God longs to see happen when he invites us out, is that we can actually be healed and whole from places that used us because of what was on us, places that corrupted us, abused us because of who we knew we were. 
because of what we could do, because of what we brought to the table, because of things we had to offer, because of different activities or different experiences that people wanted to leverage to their own agenda, towards their own benefit, towards their own mission and vision. And for some, we have to be detoxed from unhealthy environments to even get our bearings in a healthy context. Because for most, we've been conditioned by unhealthy things that it creates the terms. It makes new conditions when we find ourselves even in a healthy context where we're relating to people now out of our compromised conditions based off of how we've been treated in previous seasons. And so I set myself up to create new conditions for people to know me and interact with me. But the Lord, the Lord longs to have the power of unconditional love actually encounter us to where we can be healed from past wounds, where you were worked and abused in order to prove your value, where you can establish a restful confidence that you are who God says you are, where he can create in you a healthy lens for your own life that allows you to no longer need to do something in order to prove to people that you are something but not just so that you can remain inactive or dormant. In fact, it's the exact opposite. So that you can function in a way that's free and more full than anything you've ever known. It's so that the contribution and the investment of your life can be made to a people on behalf of God's purposes, but you don't actually need it in order to feel validated anymore. Where you can do it in a way where it's coming from a healthy and whole place where you can recognize a jealousy in the place of obedience to do what you do because you know it's who God says you are and you're no longer trying to prove a point. You're no longer trying to be validated. You're no longer trying to be endorsed or to be celebrated or elevated in certain systems or contexts or places where you can function out of a healthy sense of identity by what God says you are, no longer being limited to what a certain format said you were. And I get it. It's been hard for them because they've been tested in a severe way. And until you've been tested in a severe way, you have no idea of how to make a connection with this story as a reference point. Until you've been tested and faced adversity that has brought you to the brink time and time again, and broken you time and time again, and caused you to buckle under the weight of God's grace time and time again, and brought you to the place where if you're honest, even at times your own confidence is shaken because of how severe it is the testing has been on your life. And they found themselves in a place where everything that God had ever said to them or about them was being tested. And what do you do in a season where everything that God has said about you, everything that he said to you is being tested? Where not much about your life looks like the way you thought God would be faithful in order to 
fulfill those words that he's spoken to your life. Where the challenges that we endure actually end up shaking our confidence in the way that we interact with the Lord. If you've never been here, it's coming. I can tell you that. Unless you're just masterful at living life by your own wisdom. But in obeying the Lord, we journey with God. And in that journeying, there's going to be difficult seasons. And those difficult seasons, as Moses told them in Deuteronomy 6, 23, God did not bring you out to bury you and to kill you. He brought you out so that he could bring you in. He brought you out so that he could reveal his love and his power and his faithfulness to you. And along the way, there's going to be a variety of opportunities for you to jump ship on the things that God has said to you. But Moses told them, it wasn't only to come out. Coming out sometimes is easy. But seeing it through and getting into the things that God has said is a whole nother story. And sometimes when we've been tested so severely for so long, we end up in one of two postures. We end up in one posture where we still love Jesus. I still love you, Lord. I'm just in every way possible trying to safeguard my life from ever having to go through anything hard again. I love you. I still think you're amazing. But you can forget all that other stuff. Like in some ways, Lord, I love you. I want to be faithful to you. But I'm not believing for nothing. Don't come at me with any difficult thing to be trusted for. Like, I don't want any more shaking. I don't want any more testing. I don't want any more difficulty. I don't want any more trouble. Don't put me in any more trials. I'm not looking for no more fire. I don't want to be proved anymore. I don't want to be vetted ever again. Like, I'm good. I love you. But I am going to set my life up in a certain way that is going to safeguard me from ever having to deal with things that I've been going through. And if we're not careful, our adversity ends up compromising the way that we've known to walk with him. Where we're no longer longing to be faithful to the way, we're just now wanting to be faithful to an avoidance of issues and trouble. And then there's another posture, inevitably, that happens over time. Is where we love the Lord and we want to believe, but I'm scared. And fear grips my life. And, and it's almost like, like when you've seen a wounded animal. Right? Like when you've seen an animal that's been abused, like a dog specifically, that's been abused. And they've been mistreated and they've gone through it for a long, long time. And you find them, that, that, that dog, that wounded animal, around another person. And even if the person is lifting their hand to say, hey, look at how amazing that is. Let's believe for that together. All the wounded dog knows is the trauma of everything they've been through. And certain movements, certain actions trigger in them a particular response. And all the wounded dog knows, whether it's, hey, come to me, or let's believe for that. All the wounded dog knows is to shrink back. Well, Hebrews 10.39 says that's not us. That we are not those who shrink back. 
And I get it sometimes because of the measure of difficulty and things that we've battled. It's easy to seem to escape into either posture, to just be fearful and to lose our confidence in God. And though we don't necessarily communicate it that way, it's evidenced by the way that we respond. It's evident by the way that we respond to him and to circumstances. Where I love you, but I, 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 I don't know if I can actually trust you all the way because I don't, I don't know if your ultimate desire is to be good to me because I've had a lot of stuff go down that didn't feel so good and a lot of stuff has gone on that actually I wouldn't consider to be good at all. But I believe that you're good, but it's just hard right now. And the other posture says, I love you, but I'm just keeping it safe from here on out. Like we've walked through too many difficult things together, and I'm just not willing to do that anymore. And I feel like the Lord wants to tap some things on the inside of us. I feel like the Lord wants to knock on the door on the inside, in the place of identity, to call us back to the way. And what I mean by that is to call us back to him and his leadership and to call us back to the way that we know to walk with him, the way that in previous seasons our heart burned in the place of devotion and obedience. In previous seasons, Love was evidenced and demonstrated in a variety of ways. But now, that's no longer the evidence that's on my life, and it's because of how I justify that with things that I've been through. I feel the Lord is calling us back to the way. The way we know to walk with Him. The way we know to demonstrate love for Him. The way we know in the place of consecration and the posture of obedience. The Lord is looking for, with great jealousy, the access to our hearts again in a whole or total way where we would be all His and come back to Him in the place of desire and longing to know Him and to be His and to walk with Him in ways that previous seasons evidenced. And I feel like the Lord is speaking to some of us, all of us, in the area of identity. That on behalf of God's purposes, and on behalf of His house, He needs who He says you are. He needs who He says you are. That thing that God says about you. That thing that God has taken great time in order to build and to grow and to mature. He's asking for it in this season. He's asking you not to bury it any longer. He's asking you to dig it up and to get it ready and to make yourself ready again in the place of contribution and investment on behalf of God's purposes for his people and for his house. This is no thing with agenda. The Lord is asking you for the thing that he did in you and put on you. Do you realize that your identity in the place of calling and gifting is not for you? If it was yours, you could determine what you wanted to do with it. But it's not for you, ultimately. God didn't put what he put on you so that you could be the primary beneficiary of it. 
It wasn't for your own visibility, your own notoriety, your own exaltation of sorts, your own unique interests in the area of being able to express or do or demonstrate. What God gave you is his, and in this season, he's asking for it. God is asking you for who he says you are. He's asking you for what it is that he's put on you and grown up in you over time. And the Lord is calling us to a place where we would no longer live with a sense of domestication. Being domesticated. Living in a way that's confined, restricted, boxed in, suppressed feeling like we need something else in order to be who God says we are. Feeling like we need, when in reality, it's just a preference. It's a preference. You need to be broken from the strength of your own preference is what you actually need. You need to be broken from the strength of your own arrogance that assumes it can only be done a certain way. It can only be best experienced in a particular context. God can only get this from me if he does it or organizes it in a way where I'm demanding of him according to my preference. And in certain cases, we don't need a format. We need to be delivered from our arrogance that assumes that if God doesn't do it my way, he's not going to get it from me. If God doesn't organize it or preference it in my format, then I'm no longer willing to do it. Whose is it? Is it yours or is it the Lord's? It's the Lord's. And God is calling us in this season to rise in identity. To rise in identity and to no longer be willing to live buried under the ashes of what has happened to us. To live under the ashes of where I've been and what I've been through. And in some cases, we need prophetic speech that's going to speak to me according to who God says I am and where I'm going that's no longer only going to imagine me by the things that have happened to me. We need prophetic interactions that are no longer going to be satisfied with making accommodations for the limitations based off of the excuses and the exemptions because you don't know where I've been, you don't know what I've gone through, you don't know how hard it's been. There's a new expectation. There's a different level in your maturity and God is expecting something different in the days to come. And the Lord is requiring of us that our interactions be seasoned with prophetic speech that no longer limits us by the things that have happened to us, but where we can speak to and into one another and those things that are in us and on us and call them out of us for the sake of what God is doing in this moment with his purposes and his people and his house. And the Lord is asking for it. And I believe that he wants to tap those things on the inside and awaken them because he's asking for them in this season. And I'm going to ask, let's just stand up together.
And even as we stand, we haven't gathered in a corporate way today just to hear information and then to either acknowledge in some intellectual way, hey, brother, I agree with the things you're saying. Praise God. Great word. How great was the word if we're not actually going to live it? Too often we gather for the sake of hearing information. And we're going to take over the next couple of moments an opportunity before the Lord just to respond. Just to interact with the Lord based off of things that have been shared. And consider for our own hearts and our own lives and the way we're journeying with the Lord together the things that he's saying and what it actually means for us. We're going to take a moment to consider the Lord's leadership in our life. And as we do that, we're just going to weigh these words together in our own hearts. And after a moment or two, I mean, I'm going to pray for us now, but after a moment or two, I'm going to ask for any in the room who feel to respond in a particular way. And we're going to have different ones who are among us just, man, lay hands on each other and pray, man, and actually believe God together and contend together for the reality and the power of the word of the Lord actually advancing in our heart and in our life. So, Lord, as we find ourselves here together, it is our desire to love you with all of our hearts. We want to know you, Lord. We want to break beyond all the superficial, at times, culture, entertainment-driven ideas. Lord, we want to know you. We want to know you in a real way. And we want to walk with you, Lord, in a deep way. We want to know the beautiful place of fellowship with God. And to have the power of that fellowship that actually transforms our lives. We want to come under your leadership. Even though your leadership may break us a million times, we want to be beautifully broken under the weight of your beauty. We want to know you, Lord. Oh, to know you, Jesus. And Lord, I'm praying that even as we've been together and considered certain things, Lord, would you touch our hearts? Would you lay your hand upon our lives in a mighty way? Would you arrest us? We're not just some intellectual consideration of the things that have been shared, but in a divine way, would you intervene? In a divine way, would you lay hold of us? In a divine way, even like you did with Paul, would you stop us dead in our tracks? Lord, we want to be everything that you say we are. We want to be everything that you say we are. 
We want to do the things that we know we're called to do. We want to be the sons and daughters that you've defined by your own loving power and faithfulness demonstrated to us. Well, Lord, we need your help. So many things in life have tried to compromise us. So many things about what we've gone through have tried to change us. But Lord, I pray that this afternoon we would hear your spirit calling out to us in the depths of the deep. It's time to awaken. It's time to rise from your slumber. It's time to get up and dust off. It's time to reorient yourself to the things that you know I've said to you. It's time to once again take that posture of loving faithfulness and obedience. Come find me again in the place of fellowship. just take a moment before the Lord, before we pray in a different way. And in whatever way you feel it's appropriate to respond to the Lord, 